All right, so in a show, I'm going to start with an example from a show that Jill and I were watching recently. Um, we have very little time to watch stuff these days, but occasionally we squeeze in something. And we were watching this show that's a, it's a, like a half drama, half comedy um, TV show. And um, one in one scene, one of the main characters of the show was um, explaining to another character all the ways that he's busy, like all the things he does to fill up his schedule, he, all the volunteering he does, all the stuff, just stuff he does that keeps himself really, really busy. And um, and after he's gives this whole litany of things that he does, uh, he sa then he finishes it up by saying the line, "Yeah, anything to keep back the creeping terror." <laughs> um, and I thought that was really funny, um, but it actually got me thinking. Um, it's really funny in the context of the scene. He's kind of acknowledging like. Yeah, if I stop moving or thinking, if I don't keep myself busy, I just get like nihilistic despair, basically. Um, and that f that phrase has been like reverberating with me as I've been thinking about this sermon. It got me thinking that I, I actually bet I think the reason uh, the writers put that line in the show is because a lot of us probably actually feel the same way. And the reason you kind of like laugh at it is because you relate to that feeling, right? Uh, I suspect. Well, I experienced this, and I know a lot of people do experience this in our culture today, there can be this, like, lurking sense of kind of anxiety, right? Um, dread. That kind of pops up above the surface whenever you're quiet, right? Like, whenever you're bored or whenever you're unhurried, um, right? It just kind of, like, that's why we, I think, that's why we kind of grab these, you know? It's like any, anything to just keep my mind from going there. Um, and I think that's what this funny line was getting at, anything to keep back the creeping terror. Um, and there's a lot that could be said about that whole dynamic in our culture. I think that I think that part of what goes on in our culture is our culture tries to provide lots and lots of ways for us to distract ourselves from that. We just kind of keep ourselves numb in so many, so many ways. Uh, watching TV shows, ironically, probably is one of them, um, where I got this whole idea from. Um, but I would I would say that at least a part. So there's a lot that could be unpacked just from that whole idea of like why we're why we have this anxiety under the surface. But I would argue that part of what's going on there is I think that there's a pretty profound um, pretty profound lack of like a deep, deep sense of purpose or a deep, deep sense of meaning that a lot of people experience in our in our time. Um, I mean, big questions, right? Like, what's the point of everything? Like, why am I here? You know, um, am I? What am I going to leave leave behind me for my kids? That those kinds of questions, like big, 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 and they're kind of big and overwhelming. And so that's part of the reason why we kind of just like push them away. I think. Does anyone re relate to this? Does anyone kind of feel what I'm talking about? And so I'm starting here because today what I want to talk about is all about purpose, actually. It's all about, I think, I think when you feel, on the flip side of the example I'm kind of talking about, when you actually feel like a strong sense of purpose, when you find something like, yes, this is what I am meant to do, or this is why I'm here, when you feel that, those anxieties kind of go away, right? Like th that dread kind of goes away. Um, and so that's why I'm starting here, because I want to talk today about the purpose of the church, actually. <laughs> uh, why are we here? Like, not just individually. I think a lot of us feel, like, individual purpose anxiety, but, like, I want to talk about communal purpose. Like, what are we doing? Um, why do we gather? Why do we practice things we do? Why do we study scriptures? Why do we sing? Why, you know, like, just, I want to talk about our purpose. And to get at that, we're going to look at Jesus's, some of Jesus' words for his disciples and followers right at the very end um, of the book of Matthew. So this is actually our last sermon in the Matthew series that we've been going through. 
uh, starting this year and beginning of January. Um, and I think what we're about to look at is a super, super familiar passage if you've grown up in church settings at all. It's the Great Commission. So it's the end of Matthew 28. You can go ahead and flip there if you have it in front of you. Uh, it's very, very well known in particularly evangelical-type churches. Um, but I think when we sit in those wor- sit in these words for a little bit, kind of unpack them, reflect on them, let them sink in a little bit deeper, I think when we start to let them kind of get a hold of us, I think they can imbue us. Well, not I think. That's soft. I know. <laughs> I know and I believe pretty confidently that they can give us, a, uh, us as the church, a pretty renewed sense of purpose. Like it actually, and I, I think they actually, for me, it's actually stirred up some excitement about our purpose as a church as I've studied it this week. So that's what I hope to bring to you this morning. Um, so let me pray for this time, and then we'll dive into just a couple verses, actually. So pray with me. Um, Lord, I, my prayer is really simple. I pray that um, your aims and your purpose for us would be felt uh, this morning in what I'm about to say. I pray that you would enliven my words with um, the same spirit that was with your disciples that on that mountainside, um, that we would find stirred up in ourselves today a renewed sense of why we're here and what you would have us do, how you would have our li- what you would have our life together look like. Um, pray this in your name, Amen. So this scene that we're going to look at uh, really comes. If you were here last week for Easter, uh, it really comes right off of what I was talking about last week. So. In the Easter sermon, uh, the women meet that angel at the tomb. The angel gives them instructions, and then they encounter Jesus himself as they're walking uh, to give those instructions to the disciples. They, they actually, the women meet Jesus, and Jesus tells them to tell the disciples to go meet me in Galilee. Right, So we're coming right off of that. So we're actually coming into the scene where the disciples meet Jesus for the first time after, this, uh, after the resurrection, um, after they've heard this news about Jesus being alive again. And so uh, he tells them, and I'm just going to set up the scene really briefly, and then we're going to read a, just a couple verses. Um, apparently, he tells them to go meet him on a mountain um, in Galilee. And so they go to this mountain, and it's really significant. The first thing I want to say about the context here is that the fact that this is on a mountain is really, really significant. That's a very easy detail to miss if you just read it kind of with our cultural lenses today, if you just read the story. Um, we don't culturally tend to think of mountains as, I mean, they're fun to hike, you know, but we don't really think of them as spiritually significant, but th- that is not the case for the, for the writers of the scriptures. Mountains, especially in the biblical narrative, I mean, what are some, we can do some discussion, we're small enough, like, we don't have the sound system, we can do this. Um, what are some, what are some significant mountains in the Bible? I don't know, what are some things that happen on mountains? Just volunteer, Bible trivia. Ten Commandments came off of a mountain, yeah, yeah, anything else? Yeah? Noah's Ark landed on a mountain, right? Um, Mount Sinai is where the uh, Ten Commandments came from. Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mountain. <laughs> uh, so, and there's even more. There's way more. <clears throat> Mountains uh, are marker points in the story of God in the Bible, right? There are points when significant revelations about God and God's intentions for people are revealed. People in the ancient world believed that mountains were, like, literally closer to the heavens. Um, there's a whole cosmology around it that I won't go into, but that's, that's part, of, part of what kind of the worldview of the time was. But regardless of all of that, the point I'm trying to make here is that the fact that this says they met him on a mountain calls back to people like Moses, who received instructions directly from God on a mountain to give to God's people, right? 
So this is kind of signaling, like, hey, pay attention. This is about to be a pretty big deal, what's about to happen. Um, Jesus is about to give instructions, and we believe Jesus is God. So instructions right from the mouth of God to his followers. So this is the Great Commission. Um, and so we're going to read. I'm reading out of the NIV. It's right at the end of Matthew 28. I'm just going to read, I think, three or four verses of it. They're very, again, these are super familiar. Super, super familiar if you've grown up in kind of evangelical churches. But let's hear them again. Hear them anew. <clears throat> in verse 18, Jesus, it says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the Great Commission. Those are the last instructions he gave to the disciples in the book of Matthew. And so the way I want to approach this very familiar text this morning, the way I want to kind of break this down, is I want to focus on, there are three um, imperatives, three commands, three, yeah, imperative commands that Jesus gives to the followers on this mountainside. And I want to impact each of them in turn. And I think kind of my overarching idea this morning is that when these three commands interlock, they, they form a robust picture of what it will look like for us to live into God's purpose for us, like what our life together will look like when, when we look at these three commands together. And they are to make disciples. That's one word in the Greek, make disciples. To baptize and to teach. Make disciples, baptize, teach. Those are the three things that I think when they overlap, they, they create a really exciting picture, actually, for what our life can look like. So I want to go each one in turn. So in, in 19, verse 19, he says, Therefore, go, and we're going to get to the therefore, so don't worry about that. That'll, that'll come at the end. But go and make disciples of all nations, and ethnos is the word for nations there. Um, so disciples, man, talk about, it's like, I say, I say this a lot, but I really, I try very hard to avoid, like, Christianese jargon when I give these messages. And the Great Commission is, like, Christian jargon 101. It's just, like, all of it. <laughs> all of it in a couple of verses. So disciples is one of those words that just is so, like, churchy, you know? Um, and so I want to I wanna approach it and think about what it really means to make disciples. And I want to propose that it means, simply means, to seek to make committed followers of Jesus, like to try to endeavor to make committed followers. And these, these followers will grow in maturity and commitment over time and deeper loyalty to Jesus. But we're, we're, we're called to try to make people, to turn people into followers of Jesus. And you're like, yeah, obviously, obviously, Joel, why did I come here this morning? Um, so, uh, but what I want to, what I want to unpack here is that part of Part of what this disciple-making involves is conversion, is change. To call people, part of what we are to be up to is to call people to forsake a previous way of living and thinking about the world, to forsake that way and to consciously and intentionally enter a new way, a way of loyalty to Jesus. And the idea, <coughs> I wanna, <coughs> excuse me, what I want to talk about now is that or acknowledge, is that the idea of conversion is pretty unfashionable, <laughs> I think, right? Um, people don't like it, especially when Christians try to tell them to rethink their paradigm or to change their minds about what they believe. And this is where 
phrases like, well, it's fine for you to believe that. I'm glad that works for you. You know, don't shove religion down my throat. Th those kinds of, right? Those kinds of phrases come, come from this mindset, I think. Resistance to conversion. And I want to say, I can relate to that feeling, right? Because if the, ti if the tables are turned around, I don't really like when someone comes up to me and says, I think that the entire way that you think about the world and your life is probably wrong. <laughs> uh, and you might want to rethink about, you know, living every, everything that you do in a different way. Uh, that's like, I'm like, excuse me, who are you? <laughs> uh, that, I can relate to that feeling, so I want to be sympathetic to it, right? I think we can all relate to that. I mean, who, who likes to be told? Who, who likes to be called to convert, frankly? Like, who likes it? It's challenging. But what I want to push back on, so I want to acknowledge that, but what I want to push back on is the notion that it's only Christians who seek converts, that's simply not true. I want to argue that pretty much everybody seeks to make disciples, seeks to make conversions. So examples, right? Examples might be coming to your mind right now. Political ideologies and political groups are a very, very, very prominent example today. People, I would argue, people seek conversions in the realm of political ideologies. Especially people who are the most vocal and impassioned about their political alignment want to make disciples of that group, right? They want, it, they want people who disagree with them politically to change their minds, to repent, and to convert, and to follow a new way of thinking, <laughs> right? It's the same thing. And I would argue that actually part of the fervor around politics is because of the general lack of kind of religious idea, ideas in our world today. People are just taking that energy and applying it in a different direction, and that's politics which is why it's so becomes so acrimonious. But that's a tangent. Um, I, the point I'm trying to make is that this whole idea of seeking to make disciples and even proclaiming for conversion and change is not limited to just Christians. But it's also not even limited to politics. That's just a really strong example. But I've known people, for example, who want to make disciples of their favorite sports team, right? Uh, I've known people who want to make disciples of cryptocurrency, um, I've known people who want to make disciples of their chosen parenting method, including things like homeschooling or public schooling or fill-in-the-blank disciplinary methods. Uh, I've known people who want to make disciples of their views on race and justice and history. I mean, just the examples go on and on and on. Right? You can probably think of others. And so this whole notion of disciple-making is something that humans do and we are called, Jesus is reminding us in the Great Commission, that we are called to make disciples intentionally of him, right? All these other, you can have opinions about all the examples I just listed, and I know a lot of you do in various ways. We can have opinions about that, and we can even, you know, get into heated discussions about it, and that's fine. But as long as we're endeavoring to make disciples primarily of this man, who is king over all of the things I just mentioned— Right? That puts things into a different kind of priority structure. We are, we are called to make disciples of him, and that does involve seeking conversion, proclaiming conversion to others to forsake the previous ways that they've lived and thought. And I don't think we should be shy about that. We shouldn't be jerks about it, but I don't think we should be shy about it. I think we should be confident about it. I mean, we, we believe that we're calling people to follow the resurrected king who is the maker of the heavens and the earth, who loves them, right? And this is the path, we believe the path of human flourishing even, 
So I, I don't want to be shy about that or embarrassed about that. And in fact, all the other disciple-making efforts that happen around us are discipling people to death. Discipling people towards death in lots of ways. I mean, we can see, I started with the political example because we can see that. I mean, I think that's obvious to all of us. So we are called to seek conversion, to seek to make committed followers, to proclaim the way of Jesus and call people to follow him and indeed change their life and and, and grow. It's also not just conversion. It's actually an ongoing growth of maturity and ongoing commitment. Ideally, the longer you follow Jesus in community, the more loyal you become to him over time. And I want to say to you really quickly before we move on to the to number two and three, uh, that word ethnos there. There's man, you could do a whole sermon just on the make disciples of all nations. I I just want to note it and mention that it is intentionally a word that means all groups of people, all subgroups of people. It's where we get our word ethnicity from. The English word ethnicity comes from this word ethnos. It's usually translated nations when it's translated into English. But I want what I want to say about it right now is I want you to remember that. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi telling a bunch of Jewish followers to make disciples of him from all nations, right? And what goes out through the rest of the New Testament in many ways is a wrestling with the reality for the Jews that it was also to Gentiles, right? That this discipling was supposed to go out to the rest. That's a a lot of what the book of Acts is about and a lot of Paul's letters in particular are about the implications of this command to make disciples of all nations. And so we don't, in our culture, we don't struggle with the Jew-Gentile divide, but we have plenty of subgroup divisions that we struggle with, right? And this word, ethnos, applies to all people groups. This call to follow this king goes to all people groups. It is not to be limited to anyone. And when we start to make the mistake that we think people need to become a part of our people group first before they can follow Jesus, that is deadly to the gospel, and that is, read Galatians, that is exactly why Paul had such sharp words for the early Christians who forgot that, that, they, that we, 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 we can easily, because we're humans, because we get into these myopic views of the world, we can start to think that we need to make people part of our subgroup first, and then call them to follow Jesus. Not true. It goes out to all ethnos, to all people groups. Um, All right, I want to spend the most time on that first one to make disciples. Here's the second one, also in verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if thinking about disciples is to think about making committed followers, the way I think about baptizing is to publicly mark the commitment. So not only do we call call people to commit to following Jesus, but we actually should celebrate and mark publicly the commitment that's been made. That's what baptism, I would argue, is about. And yes, the subject of baptism can get complicated and surprisingly contentious uh, pretty fast. And I I don't want to go into all that, all those historical theological aspects of it. Should babies be baptized or not? Should only adults be baptized? All that stuff. Do you dip? Do you just put some on the head? I I don't want to go into all that. Um, What I do want to insist on, and you, you might have opinions about all that stuff. That's fine. We can talk about it. Email me, whatever. Um, I, what I want to insist on is that baptism is important. And momentarily setting aside all of those arguments about it, about what it, how it works, how, whatever, I think the simplest and most concise way to think about baptism faithfully in the spirit of what Jesus is saying, I think, is to publicly and intentionally mark someone's entry into the people of God. And just like our culture makes disciples, I would argue our culture baptizes. (laughs) 
our culture marks, publicly marks transitions and commitments. Right? So think about some examples. Ceremonies that show off your public identification with a party or with a group, a cultural group. Uh, a ceremony for citizenship to a nation. Um, graduation ceremonies for schools, education, right? These are, I'm not trying to make an equivalence to baptism, but these are ways that we publicly and ceremonially mark transitions in people's lives and commitments and, and, and work that people have done, right? And I can think of ceremonies in my life, certain things in my journey, that have been pretty powerful for me, like ceremonies of marking um, when I've completed an educational, I don't know, project or something. You can probably think of ceremonies that are important for you, too. But what I want to say is that there is something that happens in these public celebrations of choices and commitments. There's something important and spiritual, I would say, that happens. And it's an important role. When done appropriately, these kinds of ceremonies and rituals play a really important role in the person who is making the commitment, right? So someone who goes through schooling, for example, and gets that degree, walks across that stage, like that ceremony plays some kind of role in cementing and furthering that, that, that next stage of their journey that they're on. Does this make sense? And I, w- I would argue that baptism is similarly an important, really, really important transitory ritual. It's not, hear me really clearly, baptism is not magic, we don't think at Monsieur Day. We don't think that baptism causes celib- or causes um, salvation. We don't think that it, like it's this magic thing that you do to ensure your your salvation or whatever. But I would argue that it is very important to publicly acknowledge to after you want be and part of calling people to follow Jesus as, as disciples to publicly acknowledge in the context of the community that they are now in the people of God and have made this commitment. That ritual is super super important. And personally, as I've been reflecting on it this this week, I think it's something I would love for us to do it more, honestly, in this community specifically. We don't do it that much. Um, I would love for us to emphasize and celebrate baptism more frequently. I would love for us to intentionally celebrate and mark these types of choices and commitments and transitions that our people go through. And then third, after making disciples and baptizing, the third is to teach. And this is maybe the simplest one, but I think about it as to simply give ongoing instructions and explanations of what this life trajectory means. To teach or instruct those who have become disciples and have been baptized and marked by it in an ongoing way. And this is equally, this is also important. And I would also emphasize, just like our culture makes disciples and seeks converts and baptizes through celebrating rituals and transitions, I would argue that our culture also does this. In whatever life direction you've devoted yourself to, whatever you are a disciple of culturally, think about those examples I mentioned a minute ago, politics, etc. Whatever you are devoted to as a disciple in our culture, you will experience ongoing teaching and instruction and formation in that direction. So examples. If you, again, if you have... Affiliated with a political party, you probably get emails <laughs> from that political party. You probably you might listen to podcasts. I'm a kind of a podcast junkie, so I've got a ton of podcasts on my phone all the time. You probably listen to podcasts about certain ways of viewing the world that are instructing you to think and interpret way, uh, what you experience. Um, you probably are part of a certain news and media ecosystem, right, that a lot of ways is influenced by social media that uh, – 
cultivates a certain way of teaching you about the world, about world events, right? These are all examples, and there's, there's more, of course. But these are just some examples about how cultural groups, aspects of our culture are trying to not only make you a disciple, but also on in an ongoing way form you in a certain direction, right? These things all impact the way podcasts, whatever, social media feeds, all that stuff impacts the way that we interpret and receive information and make sense of our world. And the longer we kind of bathe in that stuff, the more that we grow, find ourselves committed to that certain way, right? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm being very vague. I'm trying to not give any like specific examples because I, I want it to be clear that it applies to all, um, especially when it comes to politics. And these things, here's what I want to say about this before we end. These ways of teaching, these ways of instruction, they're not neutral. Our culture has kind of done this like religious secular split where we think that the religions are the ones that have an agenda for teaching you about thinking about the world in a certain way, but everything else is just neutral. Not true. Everything is trying to teach you to make sense of the world in a certain way. And just like all those things I just mentioned are trying to teach their committed disciples in a certain way, the church is also supposed to act in that way, to form in an ongoing way the discipled life, to boldly teach, to instruct those who are committed to following Jesus in an ongoing way, to get to increase their loyalty and their commitment and their maturity and their wisdom. And that involves understanding how we're supposed to move and act in the world, how we're supposed to make sense of what's happening around us. And these three things, again, like I said at the beginning, when they're taken together, I think when making disciples and seeking conversions, when celebrating them publicly and through baptism, and when teaching in an ongoing way, instructing in an ongoing way, when, when you take those three things together, I think they provide a full, exciting, robust vision of, of how we are supposed to act, like what our purpose is as the church. What are we supposed to be doing now? We're supposed to be seeking con conversions. We're supposed to be marking those decisions and commitments of belief, and we're supposed to provide an ongoing instruction in the way of Jesus and the life that is supposed to be lived in our culture and our world today. And I, I love that. I want to be um, part of that. I want us to do that. <laughs> I want us to be doing these three things in a way that is life-giving and exciting and fulfilling. Um, and I think that life... These three things, a life that is marked by these three things will be compelling. But there's a one piece, and this is where I want to end. There's one really crucial piece of this whole picture that we really cannot forget, and it's what I want to end on this morning. I said I'd, I'd alluded to this earlier. I'm going to loop back to it. I want to end on, because I could, I could stop here and call us to just say, just do these things, Right? But I want to end on a really, really important piece of context for the commands that we've been given, which is the authority and the power that's been given to Jesus. He said right before, at the beginning, in verse 18, before he issued these three commands, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And that, become, that comes right before the therefore. There's kind of a cliche phrase in like, I heard it a lot in seminary. Um, what's the therefore, therefore? That's what you're supposed to ask whenever you read it. Um, and the therefore is therefore this verse, this phrase. All authority has been given to Jesus. And then he says, therefore go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Teach in the reality of the authority that he's been given. Um, this reveals, I think, something pretty crucial about God, this statement, and about us. And I want to reflect on it for a moment. 
Because think about the structure of this whole deal. Jesus has gone through everything he's gone through. We've been following Gospel Matthew for a while now. He goes through the cross. He goes through the resurrection, which we talked about last week. He calls his followers onto a mountain and ends everything with this. And we believe that, it's hard to articulate this, but we do believe as Christians that this is true, that all authority has been given to him. I mean, this is what Philippians 2 says, that as he went through, even, even, the, even death on a cross and ma- being made like a slave and resurrected and exalted name above all names, like that is language about all authority on heaven and earth being given to him, and that's a present reality. But what I want you to think about is I I can imagine, like imagine a kind of counterfactual to this. I can imagine a human ruler who had gone through something and become king. I can imagine a human ruler saying something like, now that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, here's what I am going to do to fix it. (laughs) Right? Can you imagine that? Like, now that I've been, whatever, put in this position of power, Here's what I'm going to do. And frankly, this is what politicians usually, the language they use, right? But Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, now that I have all authority in heaven and earth, here's what I want you to do. In light of this new reality that has dawned, the morning of the empty tomb, in light of this new reality that you find yourselves in, here's what I want you to do. Go, make disciples in my name, baptize in my name, teach them about what it means to live in my name. Here's a simple analogy of this. If you have worked for a company or some sort of organization for some time, this only like partly gets at it, but I think it starts to get at the experience. If if someone really powerful in that organization has like called you into their office and deputized and commissioned you to do something, I don't know if any of you have had an experience like this, but CEO, president, whatever, they call you in and they say, all right, here's what I want you to do. And you have full jurisdiction to do it. And I'm the owner of the company. So no one can tell you different, you know, like that kind of, that kind of experience. It feels pretty good. <laughs> like if someone calls you and they notice you, they call you and they give, they give you the authority that they based in the authority that they have as the owner of the company, whatever, they give you the authority to go do and accomplish something. They deputize you in a way to take on a project. I when when I've had experiences like that, it's it it like builds up a sense of confidence in me. Like, oh my gosh, this person like knows me. They and they they see something in me that they that I can take this out, right? In in this is important. In the light of the authority and power they have already, there's kind of a confidence and a safety and almost like an abandon, you know, not a recklessness, but like it like like you can just go out and and make stuff happen. <laughs> um, this, as imperfect as that analogy is, I think it gets at kind of what Jesus is doing here. Like, think about that. Compare the CEO of, to, of an organization to the maker of heaven and earth who just resurrected, demonstrating death's inability to be powerful over him. That person is saying, you have the authority in the, in the light of my name and the authority that's clearly been established now. You have this job to do. Now go do it in my name. That is exciting to me. That is the mission that we have today. And I think this gets at the mission of God. God's mission was never to like hoard power to himself. 
God's mission was always to create fully alive humans as representatives of God's life on earth. That's always what God's been about. And that's what it means to be in God's kingdom today, is to be a fully deputized, alive, confident, um, yeah, fully excited member of God's kingdom, taking God's kingdom work out into the world that needs it. And the culmination of this is this mountainside when he gives these instructions to his followers. It looks like kingdom agents who are us doing kingdom expanding work by making disciples, calling for converts, by baptizing them, marking their transitions publicly, their, their, their transformation and their commitments publicly in the light of the community, and by teaching them in an ongoing way what it means to live in the confidence of this man's authority. That is the growth of the kingdom. That is the work of the kingdom that we are about. And Jesus ends this whole thing by saying, I am with you to the end of the age. So not only does he establish authority, but he deputizes us and sends us out, but he is with us. And I think that as we are grasped by this, his authority and his withness of us, that empowers us to live into this purpose, into this great commission in a life-giving and a compelling way. And that's, that's my prayer for us. And so we're going to um, celebrate communion, and um, Danny is going to come up and lead us through that. Um, and I would just encourage you, he's going to share some words about it, but I would just encourage you, um, as you take communion, think about the withness of God. I mean, like, we're, we, we are celebrating this ritual that represents the flesh and the blood, and there's a really powerful kind of withness of that, that he is with us as we remember, as we take this ritual.